I do like these in and out lists that you kids have been making. You crazy kids, you think you're just you're just gonna figure out how to have fun in a world that is catastrophically fucked up? Is that is that what happens now? That's not what I learned from Gen X. I'm pretty sure the rules are we are sad about everything and nothing matters. But you guys are just like, no, we have fun. We have fun now and we make in and out lists. Did you make one of those? By the time this comes out, it's going to be three weeks into the new year. So you may not remember what's on your in and out list. I certainly don't. Let me have a look here. In. Don't do something sit there getting ridiculously buff smart and rich that one casey musgraves album i listened to way too much in 2018 reading the books i already have fuck this i'm going to kent street out the lrb podcast being cold feeling bad about not actually working for the 7.6 hours i'm paid for punishing myself for being a sad girl so this time last year i found myself talking a lot about what poetry is and isn't And I think that's because when you spend time around family at the end of the year, there's always a conversation where people attempt to sum you up. It's a kind of, and so are you still working for that? Where are you working again? That kind of conversation. And if you're a poet, there are questions like, have you published any poems lately? No, actually, second wife of distant relative. I have not, but thank you for asking. I did have a conversation with a mate who said he'd skimmed this year's Best Australian. And then he texted me because I'm the resident poet in his life. And he, he wrote a haiku to me. I had to go find it because I couldn't remember. It goes, what the fuck is poetry? Seriously. What the fuck is it? I think that might be seven, four, five. So he's made a new form of haiku there. That's cool. Um, But look, defining poetry is out. That's on the out list for this year. I am not going down that road. You'll be happy to hear. I think I said this last year, but what is in for Poetry Says in 2024 is doing exactly as I please. I suspect the show is going to get much weirder. I may lose some of you, but if I do, I can accept that. My aim here is to be the Eat Carpet of poetry podcasts. Eat Carpet is a show that SBS used to have on that was like, it was like a clip show of all these like weird adult cartoons. And this is back in 1992 or something like that. And you would stay up really late and watch it in secret. And you would only do that if you really wanted to. No one is going to watch Eat Carpet as homework. I want to be immune to that feeling. I want to be immune to you feeling like you have to listen to this and it's a chore. And I want to be immune to hate listening. Above all, that really scares me. If you're listening to this because you hate me... (laughs) Please don't. <laughs> you could, you could, um, oh, there's just so many better ways for you to spend your time is a thing. You could read all of David Sims' letterboxed reviews and some of them you would really disagree with and some of them you would find funny. And I think you would get the same thrill, actually, 
I really would like to know what is on people's in and out lists, if that's something that you're doing. But yeah, I'm just going to dive, I'm just going to dive straight on into what interests me. And the most interesting thing that's come across the Poetry Says desk over the last month is a question I got from my wonderful, dedicated Canadian listener, Anna. As she always does when she writes to me, Anna wrote me an email that not only responded in detail to what I've been saying on the show, but she added context and she deepened my own understanding of what I had said and she asked really great questions. And a little bit of what she was talking about was the current third rail issue of generative AI and writing and our trust and mistrust of, of text that isn't written by humans. I feel really lucky that I live with someone who properly understands generative AI as much as anyone can in January 2024. So I feel a lot less worried about it than I think a lot of people do. But like with uh, defining the limits of poetry, this is not a topic I'm very interested in talking about at the moment because I don't understand it well enough, even though I live with someone who does. And I honestly, I find it kind of boring. I find talking about it kind of boring. But for Anna, thinking about this got her onto another topic that might not at first seem related. Anna wants to know about poetry voice. Before I go further into this, I want to mention that this topic has already been covered on the very first episode of Slee Ricketts, which I will link to. People sometimes write to me and ask me where to start, and I would say for sure start there, absolutely. I am going to try to unpack this question of poetry voice from a slightly different angle than Matthew did, and I'm going to lean a lot on Anna's email to help me. There are many questions she asks about poetry voice and they're all very, very smart and probably too smart for me, but I'm going to give it a shot. So here's what she said to start with. You've spoken a few times of discomfort when encountering someone reading with poetry voice. But what is it that we're so afraid or mistrustful of when we hear someone reading with poetry voice? that will fall under their spell of sentimentality or self-seriousness, lose our sense of taste, be easily fooled or manipulated, fall prey to a hoax, for example. All really good questions. I actually think it could be all of those things. But before I attempt to answer this part, I'm going to bring in I'm going to bring in the central part of Anna's question. So she writes What is the aspect of poetry voice that has this potential power or danger? I suspect it is music, or at least the attempt at musicality, because this is something that can have direct access to our emotions. Honestly, I miss the music in poetry when we feel compelled to avoid it and default to reading it like prose or deadly monotone. It seems to me that by trying to avoid poetry voice altogether, we lose an important part of what the poem is and how it is capable of speaking to us. I'm certainly not advocating for something embarrassingly theatrical, but I wonder, do you think there is a way to integrate the literal language with the music of poetic structure in a way that is satisfying and not mortifying? 
Is there a way to bring the musicality back into poetry readings while keeping the sense of authenticity we feel we've achieved by avoiding it? Have you encountered this kind of poetry voice anywhere? And if so, from whom? If not, what do you think an authentic poetry voice might sound like? Hmm. Reapply lip balm while thinking. Okay, so what I think of when I think of poetry voice isn't quite someone reading poetry like prose or deadly monotone, as Anna puts it. It's this kind of voice that is really not very much like a human voice. It isn't authentic sounding to me at all. Let me bring in a little bit here before I go further. The wild iris. At the end of my suffering, there was a door. Hear me out. That which you call death, I remember. Overhead noises, branches of the pine shifting, then nothing. So this is the 2020 Nobel Prize winner, Louise Gluck. I originally wrote Pulitzer Prize, but no, checked it. That was the Nobel Prize. To be fair to Louise Gluck, she actually just speaks like this. I can try. The poem was um, a great problem. Um, Lots of people, lots of reliable, trusted readers did not like it a whit. Um, I, and I should say first, it was very, it's very again, whatever returns from oblivion returns to find a voice. So what she's doing here, this is, this is what I think of as the essential poetry voice when I hear Louise Gluck do this. Does it emphasize the music? Absolutely not. Is it deadly monotone? It's not quite that either. It reminds me of that one character, that one character in Game of Thrones, Bran, I think it is. Isn't he the one who can like see the future? I tried, I I looked it up and I, I tried to find Bran giving some kind of prophecy, but I couldn't. So I'm using this bit out of context since I stopped watching Game of Thrones in season two. But it's this kind of prophetic tone. You're boring. You don't know what I am. I know you're a witch. And you can see the future. Tell me mine. Everyone wants to know their future. Until they know their future. It's how you might expect an oracle to speak to you. If you had gone up and said, what's going to happen to me in 2024? And the oracle was like, well... You will never wed the prince. You will wed the king. But I will be queen. Oh, yes. You will be queen. For a time. And comes another. Younger. More beautiful. To cast you down and take all you hold dear. Will the king and I have children? No. The king will have 20 children. And you will have three. That doesn't make sense. Gold will be their crowns. Gold. Their shrouds. In fact, it wouldn't be that weird at all if 
After finishing a poem, the poet cackled maniacally at the foolishness of the listening mortals. What makes me uncomfortable about it is that suddenly this person, who you might have been chatting to at the back of the reading, who you might know to be a fairly normal, fairly reasonable person, at least to some degree, they go all weird all of a sudden. They stop sounding like a person, like a human. And there is this feeling, as Anna points out, there is a feeling of wanting to resist the spell that they're trying to cast on you. To not just let your eyes glaze over and give in, even though that probably is the best way to experience a poetry reading is with your critical faculties turned way, way down a lot of the time. And Anna says she's not advocating for something embarrassingly theatrical as an alternative, but interestingly, that is where we were before we got to this strange fortune tellery kind of vibe that we have going now. We had something embarrassingly theatrical. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. I think when you go home for family Christmas and somebody finds out or brings up that you're a poet and everybody kind of does that thing like, oh, a poet, you know, like, oh, aren't you fancy? I think they have something like this in mind. I think they're getting their mental model from someone like Elliot, even if they don't realize it. The yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes. The yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes. Poetry voice used to be like this. It used to be performative. And I think there are really good reasons for that. It's really hard to follow a poem when it's just read aloud. It's really hard to keep all the language in your head and to follow a thought all the way from the start of the poem to the end. And so theatricality compensates for that in important ways. But a lot of the time, that theatricality just sucks to listen to. Caught in the unstopped air giving the rocks small leeway, and the chopped seas held him there for that year. This is Pound. His true Penelope was Flaubert. He fished by obstinate isles, observed the elegance of Circe's hair rather than the mottoes on sundials. It kind of is oracular. <laughs> now, that I, now that I listen back, he does kind of sound like a, like a fortune teller. Is it his fault? Is it Pound's fault? I'd like to blame him, but I, I don't think actually we can do that. It's heavy and it's labored. Even though it's memorable, it's just, it's so over the top. Nautilus Island's hermit heiress still lives through winter in her Spartan cottage. Her sheep still graze above the sea. Her son's a bishop. Her farmer is first selectman in our village. She's in her dotage. What the hell is that inflection? Thirsting for the hierarchic privacy of Queen Victoria's century. She buys up all the eyesores facing her shore. But where we are now, with 21st century poetry voice, is that 
huge sections of the poem just float by. Then it was over. That which you fear, being a soul and unable to speak, ending abruptly the stiff earth, bending a little, and what I took to be birds darting in low shrubs. You who do not remember passage from the other world. As I'm listening to this, I'm kind of realizing that they actually all do kind of sound the same. Like, Gluck sounds like Lowell, sounds like Pound, sounds like Eliot. I'm trying to make this case that poetry voice used to be theatrical and now it's boring as batshit or something. But, But actually, I think it's all the same. Maybe a better point to make is that if the poem is boring, like I would argue world, this one is. I tell you, I could speak again. Whatever returns from oblivion returns to find a voice. From the center of my life came... If you read it like this, there is absolutely no chance that any of it is going to go in. If you're reading Skunk Hour, some of it might still sink in because that's a fucking incredible poem. Is that a better place to land? It's just sounds. Just just hoots and clicks, just word sounds coming from a person who you might like, you might you might be really into their work. But once they start reading, it just I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I, I get some really good thinking done when bad readers are reading their work. I get um I go to all kinds of places. There is one really big exception. To all this. None of what I'm saying applies if the performance of your poem is as important as its content. In the world of slam poetry, it really, really matters if people are listening. And I've thought for a long, long time that non-slam poets, poets, <laughs> I don't want to use the word page poets because it sucks. It's just like a terrible, it's a terrible description. Poets who are not performing in slams, the rest of poets, have a lot to learn from this, from this way of delivering a poem. And I actually think that it is starting to have an impact, at least over in the US, like over the last 10 or so years, it feels to me like the slam world has kind of filtered into the more acceptable kind of big money poetry foundation world. I was looking at Button Poetry's oldest videos and you can see if you scroll all the way back all these names of people who are now big enough in American poetry that we know about them here in Australia. You can go to a bookshop and you can buy a book by Hanif Abdul-Rakib, Dines Smith, Ocean Vong, Franny Choi, Jose Olivares, actually he wasn't on Button Poetry, but I definitely include him in this school. He's just been nominated for the National Book Award. And when I spoke to John Sands of the Poetry Gods a couple of episodes ago, he talked about running a poetry room, which is the kind of language that comedians use. He was talking about this reading called Super Duper Fresh and wanting to create a cool room where people can work out new stuff. This is not the way that poets who don't care about performance talk. I didn't really get to ask John about this, but I will never forget seeing a poet called Mahogany L. Brown perform her poem Blurred Vision at the Dodge Poetry Festival in 2016. It 
totally changed my understanding of what performing a poem could be. And it was the same when I saw Terence Hayes. It is theatrical. Of course, that can be a bad thing. Something else about the Button Poetry School, the Slam Poetry School, is that it can become very formulaic. And I've had slam poets on the show here who've admitted as much to me that there is a kind of slam cadence. There's a slam pattern. But the formula is in place for a reason, right? Like a slam poem starts out quiet. It begins with just a few statements, carefully calibrated to set the scene. It draws us in with that space, that breath, that insistence. Don't forget the anaphora. We lean in and now, all of a sudden, we're on the hook as the poet begins to speak slightly louder and a little more quickly now. And the momentum of their argument builds and builds and now it might be time to add in a simile that's so perfect, so devastating It makes the audience gasp, remembering why they love poetry so much. And now begins the loudest part of the poem, when the words start coming thick and fast and louder now, louder in a kind of semi-orgasmic, climactic moment, when it all comes together and the poet is now undeniable. We couldn't disagree with their point if we tried. And then it drops. And the pauses become longer until the poet looks down and steps back from the mic. You're going to think I'm having a go, and I kind of am having a go, but also the one time I tried to do slam poetry, practiced, rocked up, put my name down, the reaction from the crowd was the most polite round of applause you have ever heard, and I did not place. What slam poets do is something that I cannot do, so I should not be making fun of it. Like I say, the music, the formula, the pattern is there for a reason. And in the best cases, it supports the poem. In the worst cases, it is the poem. And that's all you get is that kind of build and drop. Anyway, I'm, I'm not here to slam, slam poetry. I can't think of a more boring road to go down. What Anna is really asking us about here And the reason she got onto Poetry Voice in the first place is she was asking about the human voice. I'm going to go back to Louise Gluck here. There's this essay that Issy sent me a couple of months ago, which I found kind of confusing. It's called Against Sincerity. And I definitely didn't follow all of it. But I did pull out this one sentence. So in this essay, she says... Our present addiction to sincerity grows out of a preference for abandon, for the subjective I, whose impassioned partiality carries the implication of flaw, whose speech sounds individual and human and fallible. As much as I could gather, which is not a great deal, she's making an argument uh, around Keats and Milton. I'm going to read the entire paragraph here to see if that helps at all. 
She says, what we see in Keats is not indifference to thought. What we see is another species of thought than Milton's. Thought resistance to government by mind. Keats claims for the responsive animal nature its ancient right to speech. Where Milton will project an impression of mastery, Keats projects a succumbing. In terms of tone, the impression of mastery and the impression of abandon cannot coexist. Our present addiction to sincerity grows out of a preference for abandon, for the subjective I, whose impassioned partiality carries the implication of flaw, whose speech sounds individual and human and fallible. The elements of coldness to which Keats objected in Milton the insufficient anxiety about humanity, correspond to the overt projection of mastery. So it's kind of like Milton is rational and Keats is emotional. I don't think that's it. But to give it to you in Pigs and Bunnies as much as I can gather, what Gluck is saying here is we are addicted to sincerity at the moment. Because we like things that give us a sense of abandon. And we like a subjective I who's not impartial, who's flawed, and who sounds like themselves, who sounds like a fallible human. And I don't know, I suspect that listening to that, many of you are nodding along and thinking, yes, oh my God, this explains our obsession with authenticity. This is why we have YouTube. And why all those young women keep getting paid too much money to publish books where they strip the meat off their emotional lives that no one bothers to edit. And this is why we have the Housewives franchise. God damn it. Authenticity is ruining everything. We must get back to mastery. And you might be right about all that, but the thing is that Louise Gluck wrote that 20 years ago. In 1993. That year, she also edited the best American poetry, and when she did that, she included Ashbery, Bukowski, Jory Graham, Tom Gunn, Donald Hall, Jane Kenyon, Denise Levitov, W.S. Merwin, Mary Oliver, Adrian Rich, Ron Padgett. I was looking at that list and thinking, are these poets who we'd think of as addicted to sincerity? In some cases, yeah, maybe. I mean, Mary Oliver, I guess you could make that argument. Bukowski, sincere is one word you could use to describe him. Adrienne Rich, yes, she's, she's a sincere person, I think. Um, but then like Ashbury, Jory Graham, Denise Levitov. I don't know if you could sum them up that way. I think that... It's interesting, though, because I'm thinking about her making those editorial choices and including Mary Oliver and including Bukowski and including Adrian Rich. And is she thinking like, God, these poets are so obsessed with being sincere. I don't know. I wonder I wonder who she's talking about in 1993. Like, was she just way, way ahead of her time? Was she seeing this oncoming tidal wave of individual human voices that were all going to start a blog and then a Twitter account and then an Instagram and then a 
TikTok. Oh god, I sound so old. A podcast, Alice. They're going to start a podcast to attempt to answer Anna's questions properly. She asks, "Do you think there is a way to integrate the literal language with the music of poetic structure?" in a way that is satisfying and not mortifying. Have you encountered this kind of poetry anywhere, and if so, from whom? Well, yeah, I think Good Slam does that. And I think smart poets who want to connect with their audience at a poetry reading should take something from that. Even if all they take is slow down and be audible. Slow down and be audible. I think that's enough, actually. I think I'm happy with that. Slow down, be audible. Okay, no, maybe there are a few other things. Let's keep going. Anna also asks, what do you think an authentic poetry voice might sound like? I will admit to you, Anna, that I sometimes flatter myself when I read a poem on here as if it's prose. And I think to myself, well, you know, if I just read it like that, just forget all the line breaks and keep it conversational, then I'm keeping in a sense of authenticity, right? But then when I edit it back, I hear it and then I know that I go too fast and I skim over moments that should be leaned on harder and I avoid that heightened thing that happens when a good reader of poetry reads a poem. I also had a really smart note that I want to mention here from Sophie, Sophie from Norway, Sophie from Australia, who now lives in Norway. Uh, Sophie made a whole bunch of really great points, but one of the things that really grabbed me was when she was talking about her experience of learning Norwegian, learning a new language, and she said, I don't know if you speak any other languages, but to speak a new language is to pick the words you will use in a much more deliberate manner than in your mother tongue. And I know that to be true. I do speak another language. I used to speak pretty decent Japanese. Nowadays, uh, I don't know. If we landed, if we were teleported to Tokyo, well, if we were teleported to Tokyo, you wouldn't need any Japanese. But if we were were teleported to, say, the northeast coast of Japan and it was late at night and it was dark and we didn't know where we were going to sleep or get food, then I could get us out of that situation. I could find us. uh, I mean, a lot of what I'd be leaning on there is the incredible hospitality of the Japanese people who will, if they see you're in trouble, they will go to extreme lengths to make sure that you are okay. Uh, But yeah, like I used to speak Japanese is what I'm trying to say. And it is so much more deliberate when you're speaking another language. I have vivid memories of the exact moment I learned particular words. And as I got better and was able to fumble my way through an entire conversation, I felt like I was building myself a whole new personality Like when I was really, when it was really flowing, when I was really comfortable and I was talking about a topic I understood, I felt like I had a character that I could play. But I couldn't be me as I am in English 
and speak Japanese well. I had to be a version of myself who had simpler emotions and simpler thoughts, simpler wants, uh, simpler opinions. And this is how I came to gain the name Tanoshi Arisu, <laughs> which Tanoshi being fun and Arisu being my name, Alice. Fun Alice. <laughs> I was so proud of that. You have no idea. I had convinced all these lovely Japanese people, or at least one of them who gave me the nickname, that I wasn't this over-serious and deeply earnest and constantly worried depressive, but just a fun, fun gal. Just like, here for fun. <laughs> I really miss Tanoshi Arisu. <laughs> she was great. <laughs> okay, look. My conclusion here, Anna, is going to upset you. I'm going to propose that we poets steal from some of the worst people on earth. Actors. After I recite this, you will realize what Mr. Elliot meant by murder in the cathedral. This is Groucho Marx speaking at a ceremony just after T.S. Eliot's death. And now here I go, head first. But just listen to the way that he does it. Gus is the cat at the theater door. His name, as I ought to have told you before, is really asparagus. That's such a fuss to pronounce. We usually call him just Gus. His coat's very shabby, he's thin as a rake, and he suffers from palsy that makes his paw shake. Yet he was in his youth quite the smartest of cats, but no longer a terror to rats. He has this balance of conversational and practiced, casual, but very present. And whenever he joins his friends at their club, which takes place at the back of the neighboring pub, he loves to regale them, if someone else pays, with anecdotes drawn from his palmiest days. He's playing a character. He's playing the character of the poem. He really is inhabiting it, to use a very hackneyed kind of actory word. He's inhabiting the poem. In the bizarre and terrifying world of YouTube recommendations, I found this interview with Helena Bonham Carter about her favorite poem. For some reason in this interview, they didn't bother to tell the person who was vacuuming in the next room to stop it. They just kept going. So sorry about that. But listen to the way that she goes quiet and gets you to lean in. It's called warning. It's called warning. Okay. So I'll try and do it justice. Can you hear that hoover or shall I? Um, <laughs> does it really matter? No. So this is, okay, so this is by Jack. And she wrote it quite a long time ago. Age 29, in 1930, she was born in 1932. Hmm. Uh, so about 1960. Yeah, you, you're better at maths. Okay. Um, when I'm old, I shall wear, when, when I'm an old woman, I shall wear purple. This is by Jenny Joseph. When I'm an old woman, I shall wear purple, with a red hat, which doesn't go and doesn't suit me. And I shall spend my pension on brandy and summer gloves and satin sandals and say we've no money for butter. I shall sit down on the pavement when I'm tired and gobble up samples in shops and press alarm bells and run my stick along the public railings and make up for the sobriety of my youth. This is poetry voice. It is. It's heightened. It's deliberate. It's practiced. 
and it's captivating. That's that's my answer, Anna, is that we need to steal from slam poets and actors, but only the good bits. So let me try it this way. Let me do poetry voice in and out for 2024. In, being audible, slowing down, knowing your lines, caring about your lines, sounding like a human. Out, sounding like an oracle, being boring as batshit, going over time, assuming we care. Did I mention going over time? Also, Single-use plastic, cutting carbs, lying to your therapist, moving to Berlin, paywalls, the Oscars, Oscar baiting, queer baiting, bait, taking the bait, the bait and switch, Jason Bateman, baited breath, the Bates Motel, fucking Bateman's Bay. That joke is only for Canberrans. I'm so sorry, everyone else. Um, you'll get over it. So. They're all to hide. I forgive you, now I ask the same of you While we were apart, I was human too